The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So today we're going to read Luke 22, 1-23. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. The word of the Lord. Oh, good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Happy Labor Day. Really excited to look at God's word with you. A couple things before we get to that. Number one. If you're not signed up for a growth group, I want you to think about it, either a growth group or Wednesday Bible study, but let's get together, those small groups, fellowship with one another, and then in the growth groups, we're going to be really trying to ingest Philippians, so can't wait for that. That's going to start next week. Also, uh, our, our, our study on poverty, understanding poverty, you're going to learn if you come to that. When Helping Hurts, every other Saturday throughout the fall, there's two posters in the back, and get more details there. Uh, but let's pray, and we'll, uh, we'll open up this text together. Our Father, we come to you right now, just pausing for a moment, taking a breath. It's a holiday weekend. We have things on our minds. We got plans. Uh, But we just pause to remember right now, you're speaking. You are here and you are speaking and you want our attention. Every person in here, you would like our attention. And so we just want to give that to you for a moment. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would come. You'd help me to teach this faithfully. But more than anything that I can say or do, we pray, God, that you would speak. And you know what each, each person here needs. And we pray, God, for your glory that you would give that to us. 
uh, and do your work in our lives. According to your word, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a bittersweet sermon for me this morning. That's because it's our last sermon in the Gospel of Luke. I have loved this, this book so much. Uh, nothing like hearing Jesus in this way. Now some of you are thinking, and maybe asking your friend, does he know it goes to chapter 24? Like, does he know there's more? Yes, and we did that around Easter, if you'll remember. We did those passion narratives of resurrection around Easter. So if you'd like to see that at the website, uh, we'd love for you to do that. So this is our last sermon in, in Luke. And what a profound place to land. Because what we're going to see this morning is four plans or strategies for killing Jesus. So there's four different parties or individuals here with a, a set of motives in their heart and desires in their minds and schemes or plans for killing Jesus. And so questions we'll ask, you know, like, well, well who killed Jesus and, and why did they do it and, and how did all these groups combine? I mean, you know, right, the, the Romans killed Jesus, right? It was Roman soldiers who killed Jesus. But you also probably heard in our passage this morning, well, it was the chief priests who wanted to arrange and scheme his death. And then you also heard, well, they needed some help, and it was Judas who betrayed him. So who killed Jesus? Why did they do it? And why does it matter? As we go through the text today, we're going to see it goes much deeper than just the priests or Judas. Uh, far deeper, and the, the meaning of that is so incredibly important for our lives and how we respond to Jesus and what it means that he died. So four plans for killing Jesus, why it matters, and what it means for us today. So the first group, we saw them, Luke 21, verse 1. The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So who's this first group that wants to kill Jesus? The chief priests. What are they about? <clears throat> well, I think we can fairly say they were political liberals of the time running a temple business in league with the Romans. So you remember that Rome ruled in this time, right, over the world, and Rome's thing was the Pax Romana. Anybody know what that means? Roman peace. And so Roman's peace was basically, we take over you, and then if you do what we say, we'll let you live in peace. <laughs> And so Rome would leave a little room for local political control, local political leaders, and local religious control as long as there's no revolt. If there's revolt, what does Rome do? Comes and kills everyone until we get the peace back. So the religious leaders here, namely a man named Caiaphas, a chief priest, a high priest. We've seen the last few weeks, haven't we? He's kind of in partnership with the Romans. It's not like they're best friends, but he's happy to work along with them and keep the peace because what does he have working very effectively in the temple? A money-making business. And so uh, he's the priest. They're supposed to run the temple for the glory of God, the good of the people. Instead, he runs it for selfish gain and the abuse of the people. We've seen that in previous texts. Well, what does this have to do with Jesus? It has everything to do with Jesus. What did Jesus do his first thing in line when he enters into Jerusalem as the promised king? What's his first thing to do? Do you remember? He cleanses the temple. There in that moment, this business 
stopped. And the crowds that were following Jesus, swarming around him, listening to him, hearing what he said, all of a sudden, uh, the, their loyalty to the chief priest has taken a, a pause. There's a question. So Jesus has shut down their business, content, uh, condemned their practices and messages as hypocritical. They can't answer him. The people love him. What now is in question for the chief priests? Their very political, religious, and economic control. That's what's in question for the chief priests on this week of Jesus entering Jerusalem. We get an inside look as to what they were thinking in John 11. Look at John 11, starting with verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And what will happen? The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What is their fear? They lose control, and Rome will take away their leadership, their place. Look what Caiaphas says, verse 49, John eleven forty nine. 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. And we can just pause there. Do you like people who talk to you like that? Love people like this. You don't know anything. Okay. Look what he says next. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should Die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So then down in verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So you see their motive, don't you? If, if Jesus goes on like this and the crowds follow him, there will be revolt. We, we will lose our control. The, the Romans won't trust us to control this anymore. Rome will come and dominate again, and we'll lose the nation. We'll lose our temple business. We'll lose it all. So there's only one answer. It's political expedience. What must they do? Kill Jesus. Is it a theological question for them? It's not. What is it for them? It's a control question. So we can pause right here then. Um, the issue of control isn't just an ancient problem, is it? Isn't it true that if you've ever taken Jesus seriously for very long at all, what did he ask you for? Control. Well, who does he claim to be when he comes into your life? King. And so if he's your king, then he asks you for control. Have you ever felt the tension in that before? Have you ever felt the the pull when he says, I'm king, give me control. Control of what you love. Control of your lifestyle. Control of what you live for. Control of your resources. Control of your relationships. I want control. I want to be your king. What's your response been sometimes? And some of us, maybe we're still in that struggle. We, we're, we're wondering what this means. We're, we're wondering if he's trustworthy. Should we do this? Some of us are, are in the middle of rebellion right now. Jesus has said, give me control. And our answer has been... No. Others, hey, you're a Christian, you're saying, I, I want to give Jesus control, but even then, it's still a fight, isn't it? It's still a fight. And so we see these priests wanting to get rid of Jesus because he's saying, give me control. And so we measure ourselves by this. Are we willing to 
surrender that control to him. So that's, that's the first group. The religious leaders, they want to kill Jesus for the sake of their control. But as our text shows us, they need help. What's their problem? They want to arrest Jesus. They want to kill him, but they can't do it yet. Do you remember why? It was the crowd. How does the crowd feel about Jesus? They're kind of enamored with him right now, and they will serve, they're coming into the temple every day just to listen to him, and he has, you know, popular opinion, uh, the, what's that poll, that, you know, for presidents, how many, he's scoring high, supposedly, on the political opinion right now, so if, so if they come in with soldiers and arrest him publicly, what are they afraid is going to happen? Well, it'll be the mob riot, and then who's going to come in? Rome, that, that's the problem, they, they can't let that happen, so they're wondering how, how they're going to get a hold of him. With the reality of all these crowds, well, one day they hit the lottery. Who is it? Judas. What does he do? Verse 4, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So who's the second person in our story that wants to be rid of Jesus? It's Judas. Uh, the first group, religious leaders, political machine, we can understand that. This one's harder, isn't it? Have you really thought about this? How long was Judas with Jesus? Three years of following Jesus day and night. Wouldn't you love to see the things Judas saw and hear what Judas heard? Jesus saw his miracles heard his teaching, was loved by Jesus for three years. Moreover, that, moreover, Judas was a leader with Jesus. There's every reason to think when Jesus sent out the apostles to preach the gospel, guess who preached it? Judas. When Jesus sent out his apostles and actually gave them authority to do miracles, guess who did miracles? Judas. When Jesus took off his cloak and washed their feet, guess whose feet he washed? Judas, and he's going to betray him. So we have to ask right here, is Judas' issue one of evidence? Could Judas sit there and say, well, I just don't have any reason to believe that Jesus is the promised king? Or does he have more evidence than, I mean, who could have more evidence? Is the issue evidence for Judas? No, it's not. Well, what's his issue? Why does he do this three years with Jesus? Why did he do it? It's not an issue of evidence for the mind. It's an issue of heart. Of the heart and what you love. Again, John shows us Jesus, or excuse me, Judas' motivation. Remember, there's a story where this this lady takes this really valuable ointment. Uh, it's worth a lot of money, and she breaks it out and she just pours it on Jesus in this act of lavish worship. Do you remember that story? And everybody's kind of shocked and appalled at how she did this, and it was kind of awkward seeming. Jesus is happy with it. He's happy to take it as worship, but we see. Judas' response in John 12. Look at John 12, verse 4. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You can stop there right there. What does Judas seem to care about? What's he care about? He's an apostle, everyone. What does he care about? He cares about the poor. Verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas is scary, isn't he? Because externally, he loves Jesus and he loves the poor. 
and externally his message has been faithful and externally his actions have looked good externally but inwardly he has another god entirely who does judas serve money or himself using money we you know we we wonder why judas stayed along this long maybe he was expecting that earthly kingdom and, and Jesus to reign in power here and now. And if he's on the cabinet, guess what he can continue to get his hands on? Maybe more money. Maybe he sees it isn't going to go this way. He sees the political tension. He, he sees maybe that Jesus is uh, on the wrong team and maybe it's all going to end. So maybe Judas thinks, well, now's the time I can get out and still make something from it. Get my 30 coins. And so he betrays Jesus this Jesus who's loved him, this Jesus who we've heard he's been close with, he betrays him for money. What should we do with ourselves when we hear this account? Can, is, it, is it possible where you can be really religiously active and actually have somewhat of a knowledge of Jesus and even proclaim the right message? And yet, inwardly, not love him at all? It's very possible. So what kind of questions do we need to ask ourselves as we look at Judas? Who do I really love? Do, do you really love Jesus most all the way down? Do you really? And what kind of temptations are out there where you're like, well, I'd slough Jesus off for this. What kind of questions go through our minds where it's like, well, maybe all the sacrifices of Christianity aren't really worth it, and I could just be kind of a nice person for here and now. That's Judas kind of thinking. And so we see this second party that wants to get rid of Jesus. The religious leaders wanted him out. He's in the way of their control. Judas wants him out because he'd rather have the stuff of this world. Two people who want Jesus out. But there's something deeper going on, isn't there? Something even more insidious. Did you see in verse 3? Kind of, kind of amazing. Who entered into Judas in verse 3? Satan. Wow. Now the stage gets grander. It gets larger. Who, who is Satan? What do we know about him? Well, he's a, a spiritual being. Supposedly, he, um, he began right as an angel of light. He saw the face of God. He's, he's, he's powerful. He was brilliant beautiful and yet somehow there was a fall right what's his driving motivation pride he wants the place of god he wants the praise he wants the sovereign control and now what does he do what does satan do you remember genesis 3 that that core chapter um, where satan takes what god says and he wants to twist it and he takes what God makes and he wants to corrupt it. For instance, you and I, what, do you, what are you made for? What's the meaning of life? What are you made for? Glorify God as you trust his word with joyful fellowship, right? To know God and to trust his word and to follow him. You're made for that. And that's what God promises. That's joy and peace and, and righteousness. And yet what does Satan want to do with all of us even today? What does he say about God's character to us? Uh, he's not that good, right? This would be better. What does he say about God's word to us? 
I can't believe that. It's not true. Believe something else. And so then what do we do? We exchange God for something else. And, and what's the result? The wages of sin is death. He wants to corrupt. He wants to destroy. He wants to ruin you. Have any of you tasted what he has to offer? Have any of you listened to what he has to say? I think we all have. We've all bought it. That is our sin, right? God's not that good. Something else would be better. His word's not that true. I'll trust something else instead. Let's get him out of the way for something else. That's, that's the lie. That's sin. Look what Jesus said about Satan. John 8, 44. He was a, what does Satan like to do? He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And then John 10, verse 10. What else does Jesus say? The thief comes only, what's he want to do? Steal and kill and destroy. That's what he's after. That's what he wants. That's what he's deceiving us for. And that's the one who has inspired Judas. Hmm. Judas has loved money for a long time. You think Satan knows that? You think Satan knows that? The religious leaders have loved control for a long time. You think Satan knows that too? Do you think Satan is able to take these parties with their somewhat different motives and put them to a, together to accomplish something incredibly horrid? You think that happens today? Why is Satan doing this? And we want, he wants to destroy, right? We know that. You, can, uh, you, you want to play with this idea a little bit? What motivates Satan? Well, so it's kind of a curious question to ask, did Satan know that it was God's plan for Jesus to die for sins? He certainly could have if he's paying attention to uh, the scriptures. And so some people have said, well, why would he inspire Judas to betray Jesus if he doesn't want Jesus to die on the cross? Do you remember when, uh, when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to die for sins, and Peter says, no, you're not. And what did Jesus say in return to him? Get behind me, Satan. So in some way it was satanic for Peter to influence Jesus not to follow God's will for his life? So we wonder, maybe, maybe Satan thought the riot would occur and maybe Jesus would fight for an earthly kingdom and not have the cross. We don't know. I'm, we're, we're guessing. But again, I'm thinking, you know, Satan is prideful. So maybe he knows it's God's plan to, to have Jesus die for the people, but he just can't help himself. Because what does he get to enjoy for a couple days? The mocking, the beating, the abuse, the slander, the glorious crucifixion of the Son of God. Do you think he would enjoy that? He would. So do you think it's possible for prideful people to do things they know will be destructive? Have you ever done something you knew would be destructive, but hey, that's what you wanted? Come on. Come on, have you ever done something relationally or, or made some choice and you knew, you knew this was not a good thing to do, but hey, you had to say it. You had to get it. You deserved it. You, they needed it. You, and you just, and you walked right. That's what pride does. That's what pride does. And you know, 
Here's another scary thing, right? I'm scared of the religious leaders wanting control. It shows me my heart. I'm scared of Judas being externally religious and loving Jesus and inside loving money. And I'm scared of this as well because you don't have to be a Satanist to be satanically inspired. The religious leaders went to temple and read the Torah and they're satanically inspired. Judas was an apostle, and they are satanically inspired. All you have to do is love your control and want to get rid of Jesus. All you have to do is to love the stuff of this world to where you're done with Jesus. All you have to do is foster your anger and bitterness. Look at Ephesians 4.26, church. This is Paul writing to a faithful church. Be angry. By the way, that's not a command, right? Always be angry. The fruit of the Spirit... Fruit of the Spirit is anger. Come on, get angry. No, it's, it's, a, it's realizing that this world will have so much evil and injustice in it that sometimes you will get angry. Okay. Be angry and do not sin. And then what? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't stay burning ang angry. Don't. Why? Verse 27. Give no opportunity to who? The devil. You think Paul's just joking? Is he over-spiritualizing? Friends, just like Satan saw into Judas' heart and saw his motives, just like he knew the motives of the religious leaders, he sees our weak points, our anger, our unforgiveness, our pride points, the places we won't let go. And he, he knows how to work in there. Even among Christians... If you keep that anger and bitterness, it's like cracking the door and saying, hey, Satan, come on in and play. We can't handle it. Wow. Satan is happy to work through the motives of religious people. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6. 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Who cares for you? God cares for you in those hard moments. Cast your anxieties on him. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What do you need to do? Verse 9, resist him. How? Firm in your faith. Are you trusting your Lord? Are you trusting what he's done? Are you trusting his word? So what have we seen so far? The chief priests had a plan. They want control. Judas had a plan. He loves the things of this world. Satan has a plan. He wants to destroy in his pride. So much evil. Look what they will accomplish. But think about, think about this with me. If that's all we had, as far as understanding why Jesus died, where would that leave us? If all we had for why Jesus died was a political answer, well, he threatened the chief priests and, and they convinced Rome that he was a political threat, then we would just have another failed Messiah. There's lots of those. Or if all we had was Judas betraying his friend, we think, well, it was another kind and well-meaning person who just couldn't convince everyone. We have lots of those. Or if all we had was Satan led Jesus to death, then we would just have this kind of dualistic universe where there's good and there's evil and there's a fight. And man, we really hope good wins, but here, evil won. If that's all we had, the priest, Judas, Satan, would you have any reason to worship and follow Jesus? 
You wouldn't. The cross would just be a failure. But there's one more plan here working. One more strategy regarding the death of Jesus. This plan is different than all the others. They were selfish and wicked and cruel and dark. This plan is light. This plan is kindness. This plan is salvation. Because whose plan is it, ultimately, that Jesus would die on a cross? It's God's plan. It is God's plan. So look at how Jesus handles this evening. Look at the carefulness of his plan. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. So it's, it's Thursday night and, and Passover kind of bleed Thursday into Friday. And Thursday night, it's time to eat the feast together. And what did that feast symbolize? Do you remember Passover? What, what is it talking about? Do you remember? Well, way back, it's like the core moment in Israel's story, right? They're slaves in Egypt under bondage, under cruelty. They're lost. They're hopeless. And God comes to keep his promise to them and to deliver them mightily. And remember what he does to Egypt and the most powerful nation in the world? It's, uh, hey, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say every time? No. And then what does God do? A plague, a punishment, a discipline. And then, and then Pharaoh say, fine, I'll let, I'll let him go. Just let, let me out of this plague. And, and then he'll change his mind. No, I'm not letting him go. And so what do they get? Another, another plague, another punishment. God gives Pharaoh every chance, right? Every chance. And then finally, God says something like this. You know, Israel, they're like my firstborn. They're like my kid. And Pharaoh, you've been abusing and murdering and enslaving and hurting my kid. And you won't let him go. I'm giving you every chance. So I'm coming for your firstborn. It's justice, God says. I'm coming for your firstborn. But the shock is that Israel just doesn't just automatically get out. If God comes in wrath, it won't just be the Egyptians who face it. Who else will face it? The Israelites. Was God coming to save them because they were all just pious, nice, religious folks? Or are they sinners just like the Egyptians? They're sinners. And so if God comes in wrath and you stand on your own works, your own, your own righteousness, you're in trouble. So what did God provide? The idea of this lamb, right? You would have this lamb, and you would slaughter the lamb. And then what would you do with the blood? It's very strange, right? What would you do with the blood? You'd put it on your door so that when that angel of justice came through, he would see the blood, and what, what would he do? He would pass over you. You would be safe because something died in your place. Shocking, isn't it? And so that's the meal they're celebrating. I heard one pastor say it's like a combination of Thanksgiving and July 4th. Everybody's doing it, right? It's, it's a political thing. It made us who we are for Israel. And it's a Thanksgiving thing. God saved us, right? There's, there's worship in it. Okay, it's not identical. It just gives you the, the feel of this festival. And so this, this feast would be very... Very detailed, lots of symbolism. There's bitter herbs to, to remember the bitter experience of slavery. There's salt water to remember the tears of sorrow. There's different cups of wine to remember God's promises to his people. And so Jesus, being a religious Jew, the religious, the true religious Jew, says to his disciples, we're going to eat this together. We're going to celebrate this together tonight. 
Go get it ready. So Peter and John, they would have to go to the temple and get a lamb and have it slaughtered there and then take the meat back and they'd have to get the spices into this and the wine and the seats and it's a big deal. So it's kind of funny to hear him say, verse 9, where should we prepare this? You know, imagine Jesus coming up to you and being like, make a really technical, detailed, lavish feast for tonight. Go. And you've just been walking around. You know, you don't have a big house. Go do it. Where? Don't you love Jesus' answer? Verse 10. Imagine you're them. Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room that I can eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished already. Prepare it there. Jesus' disciples have to do this kind of thing a lot, right? Go do this by total faith. And again, you imagine being them. You're like, okay, did you get that down, right? I, where should we prepare this lavish feast? Eh, you'll meet a guy with a jar of water. So they walk into the city, and then who do they meet? The guy with the jar of water. By the way, it's a little, a little weird culturally. Ladies would get the water. Here's a guy with a jar of water. So it could stand up. There's not a, you know, 40 guys with jars of water. So, you know, it's probably one guy. And so, oh, okay. And they, ah, hi. You know, I don't know how that conversation goes. We're just following you to your house. Uh, and he enters into a house, and then uh, who's, who's in charge, you know? Oh, I am. Hey, uh. The teacher's ready for his Passover room. And the master says, oh, I've got it ready. It's totally ready. Prepared it there. What are you supposed to see from Luke telling you this? Is this random and accidental? Remember, look, what, what have we heard so far? The leaders of Israel want to kill Jesus. His close friend wants to betray Jesus. Satan himself is inspiring this. And who's in complete control? Jesus. Complete control. It happened just as he said. He's in control over the situation of his death. That's what you're supposed to see. It's God's plan. It's God's plan. Now, one thing I kind of stumbled on this week was, you know, why is it anonymous? Why do the disciples not know where to go to celebrate, where, where they're going to celebrate the Passover together? How come they don't, want, they don't know? Well, who wants to betray Jesus? Judas. And if Judas knows where the dinner is, where it's just them, who else would show up to that dinner, perhaps? The chief priests and the soldiers, and they arrest him. But Jesus has plans for this night, right? He's going to do something really important at this dinner, which means, Judas, you can betray me, but not until after the dinner, because I'm in control. Jesus is not, not just in control of the dinner, the situation of his death. He's, he's in control of, of what happens after the dinner. Look down at verse 21. As you hear these words, imagine you're Judas. Okay, you're kind of kicking it there. You're 
you're hanging, you're, you're doing the eating, you're doing the drinking. You think you've, you've got this wrapped up, right? You've got this plan, it's going to work. Talk to, you talk to the chief priest, you got your money. Listen to what Jesus says, verse 21. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. You feel the blood flowing to your face. I thought this was secret. I thought I thought I. And then listen to what Jesus says. For the Son of Man goes as it has been. What's that next word? Determined. What's it like to be Judas and hear that word? Hey, I have this plan for getting rid of Jesus. It's my choice, right? It's my scheme for my life. This is the way to do it. This is the way to get out with some money. And then Jesus says, you're sitting right here at the table with me. Even though you feel like you're outside of my control, you are totally under control. Woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Is, G is Judas responsible for the attitude of his heart towards Jesus? Yes. Is he responsible for being the kind of person whom Satan can enter in to betray Jesus? Yes. And will he face God's judgment for that? Yes. And who's in total control? Jesus is. Jesus is. It's God's plan that Jesus would die. And we're only scratching the surface. Uh, this is a familiar story to us, right? If we're Christians for very long, we've heard this passage Look at, as Jesus begins to celebrate this feast, look at verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What does he know about himself and what's going to happen after this meal? He's going to suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's strange as well, because he's just said, I'm going to eat it with you now, and then I'm going to suffer, and then what am I going to do later? I'm going to eat it again. Which means, I'm going to eat it with you now, I'm going to suffer to death. Wait, how, you, how, you, how do you eat it again if you're going to suffer to death? He's going to rise from the dead. It's all right here. The whole plan is right here. I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The entire plan for God to redeem his people and renew the world will, in fact, come to pass. Verse 17, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What he's probably doing here is passing out these four glasses of wine that represent God's promises from Exodus. Look at these promises, Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7. Exodus 6, 6 and 7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I'm the Lord, Here's a promise. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Here's another promise. I will deliver you from slavery to them. Here's another promise. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Verse 7. Here's another promise. I'll take you to be my people and I will be your God. Aren't these amazing promises? Do you see what Jesus is doing? When do those get fulfilled? Didn't they get fulfilled when God saved his people out of Egypt? Yeah. But were they perfectly fulfilled? Are his people still in slavery to sin? 
do they still need intimacy with God? Do they still need forgiveness? Do they still need to be redeemed? It still needs to be finished. It still needs to be completed all the way. And so Jesus is saying, even this plan from hundreds of years ago is only having its fulfillment in me right here and right now as I go to the cross. The exodus wasn't ultimately the exodus. The cross was the exodus. Now, if you just ponder that for a minute, and you think of all of God's promises for hundreds of years for the exodus to take place, and the power that God worked to make that take place, and then to have all the other promises and prophecies leading up to Jesus, and then for Jesus to sit here in this evening and say to his disciples, all of that, all of God's work for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that was all getting you ready for one thing. Me on the cross. Tell me about God's plan. Whose plan is it that Jesus would go to the cross? God's plan for the cross is the most elaborate, lavish, complicated, beautiful piece of work history will ever see. At the time, you know, have you ever looked at the back of a tapestry and you see knots and fluff and it doesn't make any sense? And then you turn around and you go, oh, that's what it's like to read through the story of the Old Testament and then land at Jesus and his cross and go, oh, it's God's plan. Look at verse 19. He took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, saying, uh, you've heard it a thousand times, Christians. Can you hear it again? This is my body. So what's the, what's the point about that? It's what? It's broken. This is my body broken, which is given for you. I'm struggling to communicate this as well as I should. God's sovereign, incredible, historical plan, all pointing to this massive event of the Son of God going to a cross, this plan of God's sovereignty in the Son of God going to the cross is given for you. If we, if we really tasted what that meant, I think we would all, I don't know, we would weep, we would fall over. He's worked all of this hist history for you to save you from your sins. Right? The Passover lamb died. Who's the Passover lamb? 1 Corinthians 11.5 Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival. He's been sacrificed. Look at verse 20. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Are you familiar with this? Uh, what's the old covenant? Covenant's a, the nature of your relationship with God. God always does covenants. The nature of your relationship with God. The old covenant was, if I could sum it up kind of simplistically, obey the law and we'll be good. Keep the law, we'll be fine. It sounds good, right? The law, it's beautiful, it's righteous, it's holy. We're good people. Yeah, that's what everybody in uh, modern people say, right? 
Raise your hand. We're all good people. Shouldn't be that hard, right? Keep the law. We'll be good. And what does Israel show us every day? What could they not do? They could not keep the law. Friends, if you look at your own life, are you a good person? Well, sort of. It depends what standard you're using. If you think of the, the jerk at your office, you might be nicer to the people than that person is. And that's good. I want you to be a nice person. But the question is, is that the standard God's going to use for you when you stand before him? What's the standard he's going to use when you stand before him? It's his perfection. It's his perfection. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself all the time. And don't just think about all the, the bad things that you didn't do occasionally. Good job. Think of all the good things you were supposed to do and refused. That would be enough to send me to hell all by itself. Forgetting every bad thing I've ever done, let's just do good things I wouldn't do. And it's enough to ruin me. We need a new covenant. I can't keep the law. And so then Jesus passes out this cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do you hear the depth of that? The prophet Jeremiah promised a new covenant back in Jeremiah 31. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it where? On their hearts. What does that mean? It's like an aortic tattoo? No. You begin to love what he loves and love what he wants. He's going to give changed hearts. And then he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord. Now there's a relationship with God. It's not just an external law-keeping. It's a relational connection and an intimacy where out of his love for you and your love for him, you want to do what pleases him. Doesn't that new covenant sound sweet? Then he says, For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. A sweet spot here in the new covenant. What does God do with your sin? He forgets it. This is God's great promise from hundreds of years ago. A new covenant to transform your heart, to give you this close relationship with God to where you love him and you want to please him and he's pleased with you. He's totally forgiven you. And Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. How is it possible that we receive the new covenant? It's through the cross. His blood bought the covenant. And when your eyes are open to see who he is and what he's done on the cross, your heart receives the new covenant. This could only happen through the cross. The cross of Christ is the only thing that could bring the new covenant. This is it. It had to happen. It's his death that died for your sins and that took uh, the, the paid the penalty for the wrath of God that we deserve. His death took it, and by faith you died with him. And that old life is dead on the cross. It's his resurrection that 
vindicates what he's done, that in him you are right with God, you are justified, and you have a new life to know and love him. It's the cross and seeing the cross where we experience God's ultimate promise of a new covenant. Whose plan is it that Jesus would die on a cross? It's God's plan for your salvation. It's God's plan for your salvation. And the timing is perfect. What are the religious leaders doing during this meal? They're scheming. They're getting their soldiers ready. What is Judas doing during this meal? He's got a plan to betray, and he's going to take him right to that perfect spot in the garden. What is Satan doing during this meal? He's inspiring and working out his plan for destruction. And what is happening on perfect schedule? The enemies will be in a hurry to get it done. We got to get them on Thursday. We got to do unjust trials all night long, and we got to get them on that cross quick. Let's get them on the cross Friday afternoon. Oh, just coincidence. That's when all the Passover lambs are being sacrificed in the temple. They're all scheming, and Jesus is in control because he died on the cross. It's his plan, it's the Father's plan, it's the Spirit's plan to save you from your sin. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I got four things for you real quick. Number one, check your heart. Check your heart. What should we do with our hearts in a story like this? You got any religious leader in your heart? You want to bounce out Jesus for your control? Have you submitted to him? What is the thing that would keep you from submission to Christ? And I just wonder, is it better than he is? Is it really making your life that glorious? Is it really thrilling you? Is it really better? Aren't his ways life? Check your heart. Look at him. Look at what he's done. Look at this plan that God would save sinners like me and like you. That his mercy would be so great that he would work all history and these massive human events to point to this one person, this one moment, his son and what he did on the cross for you. That you could be saved and forgiven, adopted and brought in as a friend of God, as a child of God, to know him like this. Isn't that incredible? Does your heart love that? Do you trust in that? Check your heart. Trust in him. Trust him. Number two, trust God's plan. Trust God's plan. Does it ever seem like life is uh, totally chaotic and out of control? Does it ever seem like the only people in your life are religious leaders, Judas and the devil? Totally out of control. A million things to be anxious about. Who is absolutely in control in the midst of everything seeming out of control? God was in control. Look at how the apostle Peter will pray later in Acts chapter 4. They're praying about persecution they're facing. And here's what Peter says, Acts 4, 27. Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Look at all these mean, wicked, scheming people. Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. If God was in sovereign control of the worst event of human history, then he's in control of all the other ones as well. You remember that great promise in Romans 8, 28? Look at this. And we know that for those who love God, what are the next two words that we believe but don't believe? All things 
work together for what? For good, for those who are called according to his purpose. How can you know that, brother and sister? How can you know that that's true? Because you know that God worked all things to accomplish his plan to save you at the cross. And because you have put your faith in Christ, if he has worked that cross for you, and he has done it for you, then guess what he's going to work everything else for? You're good. You're good in him for his glory. Check your heart. Trust Jesus. Trust God's plan. Trust him today that he's sovereign, that he's working. Number three, take the message. Right? You can't stop talking in Luke unless you say this. Take the message. Take the message. Isn't it amazing that you're in on the plan of God to save sinners? Are you amazed by that? When was the last time you told somebody that didn't know it? Sometimes we have to ask ourselves out of life, have you retired from sharing the gospel? Have you reached the special cruise version of Christianity where you no longer need to share the gospel? Or maybe you're like a grizzled veteran and you shared it a lot and now you've done enough. Or maybe you're the rookie and you like barely know the gospel and you're not sure you can share it. Did you, did you just hear this plan? That God would send his son, the Lord Jesus, to live and die and rise for you so that if you trust in him, he'll forgive you of all your sins, bring you in here as a child of God. Can you share that plan with somebody? Invite somebody to church. Keep sharing the plan. Check your heart. Trust God's plan. Take the message. And the last one, after we take up our offering, we're going to take and eat. We're going to take and eat communion today. So as you, as if you trust in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to join us. If you don't trust in, in him, we're so glad you're here. Feel free just to stay in the chair. It's no big deal. Uh, but, but to have integrity here with this meal, if you trust Jesus Christ, you're welcome to come forward and grab that bread and know that just as you have that bread, Jesus' body was torn for you. And you can come up here and have that juice and hold it in your hand and know that just as you're going to drink that juice, Jesus' blood was shed for you. It's been the eternal plan of God to save you and bring you to him. What a meal to celebrate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious plan that you would work all of history to bring it to this moment where despite all the, e the, the motives of, of evil people, even Satan himself, you were in control to save your people, to save us here even today from our sins. And we worship you for it. We praise you for it. We love you for it. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd help us check our hearts and cleanse our hearts. Lord, of any competitors that get in your way, help us to, to boot them out and to look to you, to trust in you, uh, to live for you. Do that work in us. Help us to trust you as sovereign over our difficulties, our pains, our sufferings, that you are working in our lives and our character to make us like yourself, that you will come for us and rescue us and keep all your promises to us. Lord, help us to take this gospel uh, to, the, to those we know, to those we can, are connected with, to those we bump shoulders with, it, that your plan may come to fruition in them as well. And, and bless us today now as we eat of this supper. Help us, each one, to truly treasure your great love for us in winning us through the cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.